This is an Our Savior Evangelical Free Church podcast. To learn more, visit osefc.org. If you're in here, let's grab our Bible and open it to the little book of Jude. Jude's a very little book, very near the end of the Bible. Just before Revelation, if you didn't bring a Bible with you, there's one in the rack in front of you. It's hardback, black-looking book. Please use that. Please take that. If you don't have a Bible that you enjoy reading at home, the best thing that we could help you do this morning is to be able to see the Word of God for yourself because it's living and it's active. So we're in this great, very little book. And and let's just recap a little bit because we're about halfway through. So Jude starts by saying that when he sat down to write this letter that we have now, he was planning to write something encouraging. But what he realized is he needed to write to urge these early Christians, this was written to very, the very, very first Christians, and he needed to write to them to encourage them to contend for their faith. That is really the, the theme of Jude, that those who are called by the grace of God into faith, in, into Christ, must contend for that faith. They must hold firm in it because there will always be an element of ungodliness, trying to drag people away from Jesus. And Jude just lays that out right away. That's what he says at the beginning of the letter, is contend for the faith. And then, to sort of prove that that's true, he he takes what what forms the next two sections of his letter, and and he just gives evidence both historically and in the present, with what he calls the perversion of the gospel. He says, this is what that looks like. And so if you look at your Bible, in in verses 5 to 10, he calls out unbelief, pride, and immorality. This is what he's seeing, and we have to get this not as elements outside of the church, but what's coming from inside of the church. And so as you read this little book, the message of Jude isn't, it is not, sound the alarm, draw up the bridge, lock the gate. Because the threat is from the inside. The message of Jude is do the blood test and take the antibiotic. You got that? And then verses 11 through 16 What we're doing this morning, he builds on what he did in in 5 through 10, and there's a similar pattern, except what what Jude is going to do is get increasingly personal. So in verses 5, 6, and 7, there are events, things that happen among large groups of people in in the history of God's people, and now we're going to look this morning at three specific people and how they lost their way, how they fell away and fell into ungodliness. And just kind of by way of outline, so you understand what we're doing, that's 11 through 13. 14 and 15 are going to illustrate that. There's going to be a a quotation, and then verse 16 applies that. So 11 to 13, 
examples, 14 and 15 illustrations, 16 application. And, and remember, all of this is to help us to see what we're contending against. And then next week, Lord willing, as we continue in this letter, we can begin to talking about how we fight for faith. All, really what, what Jude does is basically say, you need to contend for the faith, and then he takes a half of his letter to pause and say, let me just tell you what you're contending against. And then he comes back at the end and said, this is what you're contending, how you contend, what you contend for. You're contending for the faith once for all delivered to the saints. Let me tell you how to do that. That's how he closes. So follow along. I want to read this whole thing, and then we're going to kind of break it down almost line by line. We're going to kind of speed up at the end. But let me just read this. So follow along in your own Bible. I want you to read these things. I want you to see these things. I've encouraged you just about every week Read this letter a couple times a week. You can read this letter if you're an average reader. I'm slow. I can read it in like six or seven minutes. If you're an average reader, you can do this in four or five minutes. Read it a couple times. You see all these connections, all these things begin to emerge out of this letter when you do this. And so look at verse 11. Follow along as I read and really give your attention to this because it's serious. Woe to them, for they walked in the way of Cain and abandoned themselves for the sake of gain to Balaam's error and perished in Korah's rebellion. These are hidden reefs at your love feasts as they feast with you without fear. Shepherds feeding themselves, waterless clouds swept along by winds, fruitless trees in late autumn, twice dead, uprooted, wild waves of the sea, casting up the foam of their own shame, wandering stars for whom the gloom of utter darkness has been reserved forever. It was also about these that Enoch, the seventh from Adam, prophesied, saying, Behold, the Lord comes with ten thousands of his holy ones to execute judgment on all and to convict all the ungodly of their deeds of ungodliness that they have committed in such an ungodly way, and of all the harsh things that ungodly sinners have spoken against him. These are grumblers, malcontents, following their own sinful desires. They are loudmouth boasters, showing favoritism to gain advantage. And we'll stop there this morning. So before we go back and work carefully through this, I want you to see where it ends up. Knowing the end helps us stay focused, right? If you know where we're going. So the people who have been condemned, the people in their midst who are now being condemned, it's, look, at the, look at the end, what he says at the end. These are, what does he call them? He calls them grumblers, malcontents, they follow their own desires, they're boasters, and they're cheaters, doing what, what for dishonest gain. So basically what he says is don't fall for them and don't fall with them. You got that? Don't fall for them and don't fall with them. Church, there is a way of living that will seem appealing. It will feel easier. And it will absolutely try to convince you that it will bring you more. That, that with it, you're missing out on something if you don't follow it. 
But we eventually see that one way or another in this life or in the life to come for what that truly is. It's empty and it's lifeless. It's a way of bitterness and eventually it it, it leads to death. So don't look for your life there. Find your life in Jesus. There's a way to live that leads to death and there is a death through which we can have life. Make Jesus your aim, and by his death you will live. That is what this is saying. That's the end. So to know the end helps us see as we begin and walk through there. There is a way to live. Don't fall for it. Don't fall with it. Live through the death and resurrection of Jesus. That way leads to death. You find life through the death of Jesus. So that's where we finish. Now let's see how we get there. Go back to verse 11. Woe to them for they. We've got a they and a them already. So who is them and who are they? To answer that, we we need to look back at verse 4. Verse 4 is is really critical for the whole letter. It, 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 It kind of unlocks who he is talking about the rest of the way. So verse 4 says, For certain people have crept in unnoticed, who long ago were designated for this condemnation. Long ago designated for this condemnation. Ungodly people who pervert the grace of our God into sensuality and deny our only Master and Lord, Jesus Christ. So I could point to more, but let's just notice two things. First, What are they guilty of? Lots of things. Lots of things, but what is going to connect over and over again to these later verses that we're in today is their ungodliness and how they deny Jesus Christ. So to deny Jesus Christ, another word for that is blasphemy. Blasphemy is refusing to give God the glory and the worship that he's due. And you can blaspheme in all kinds of ways, but in blasphemy, there's a particular emphasis on what you say. And the parallel that Jude draws is verse 14. Look at verse 14. God's judgment is coming against the ungodly, especially because of the harsh things they've done. What They've what? They have spoken against him. That's blasphemy. There are blasphemers from verse 4. He's drawing them out in verse 14, and he's saying these are the same people. They're doing the same thing. So that's the first thing to see. The second thing that I want you to see is in verse 4 is that the people that Jude has in mind who'd crept into the church, they are designated for condemnation long ago. And this is what we were, we were just saying about our presence either leading to life or death. When you're in Christ, you're alive and you're heading toward an even greater glory. But but when you're following the patterns of this world, the patterns that Jude is warning against, they might look like they're coming from people who have life figured out, but really those people are already dead. 
That's what verse 4 says. Long ago, they've been designated for condemnation. There are people in the midst of this church. And folks, there are people that we know already, sadly, grievously, that are already dead. They just don't know it yet. And so be careful with the naive infatuation with the world. The way that Jude is warning against is dangerous. It might seem like it's life, but it's death. And it's not death later, it's death now. So now what Jude does is he gives three examples. He takes three people. So let's make this really personal. Let's look at three people that would have been known to this group. If you've read parts of the early Bible, they'll be known to you. If you haven't, that's okay. I'm going to explain them. So if the first person is Cain. Now you might know that Cain murdered his brother Abel. But this is referencing something that happened just before that. So in Genesis 4, the way it goes is Cain and Abel... First two brothers each bring a sacrifice before God. And God's pleased with Abel's sacrifice because he brings something valuable. Cain, though, brings something that's much easier for him to give up. And the implication there is that Cain isn't truly worshiping. Abel brings something of great value. Cain brings something that's simple and easy. And what it's showing us all the way back in in Genesis 4 is that Cain didn't trust God. In the Old Testament, sacrifice, when it's done well, is at its core an act of faith. Sacrifice is all about faith because it's not about actually the physical thing that you bring. It's about your heart in bringing it. It's about your posture in laying it down for God. Are you communicating, I trust you, I worship you, I put myself under you, my faith in you, or are you saying, I'm just going through a ritual to placate you? Am I just trying to appease you, God? The implication here is that Cain didn't have faith. Now listen to how Cain reacts, because God actually comes and he talks to Cain. He talks it through. Cain heard from God on this. God tells Cain he isn't pleased with his sacrifice. Again, not because of what he brought, but because of how Cain brought it. And so just listen to this. This is in Genesis. I'm going to pick it up in chapter 4, verse 5. And just listen to how this unfolds. Cain was very angry. And his face fell. And the Lord said to Cain, why are you angry and why is your face fallen? If you do well, will you not be accepted? And if you do not do well, sin is crouching at your door. Its desire is contrary to you. In other words, your sin promises to satisfy you. It it, it promises to fulfill you and make you think it's something, but it actually, its desire is contrary to you. Your sin tries to destroy you. That's its goal. So your sin, its desire is contrary to you, but you must rule over it. In other words, you must put it to death. You must subjugate your sin, not be subject to it. But Cain didn't do that. The very next thing that happens is Cain murders Abel. And what we see here is that murder is a heinous act, absolutely. 
But that was born into Cain's heart when he refused to listen to the word of the Lord. God had just warned Cain, Cain, you're angry. Sin's crouching at your door. It wants to destroy you. It wants to harm you. But Cain didn't listen. He murders his brother. And this has to be the most glaring warning that Jude brings. Watch out for people people who, who either completely disregard or twist the word of God. People who God has spoken to, who know the mercy that's possible through Jesus Christ and have turned away from it, or possibly even worse, people who twist the word of God to make it something that it isn't. That's what Cain did. That's why Jude says, look at Cain. Next, Jude says, the ungodly uh, abandon themselves for the sake of gain to Balaam's error. Who's Balaam? Balaam was a teacher of God's people who was approached by a foreign king and he was offered money in exchange for uh, abandoning God and, and cursing his own people, delivering over his own people. Balaam was also a lustful man in much sensuality. So for a time, Balaam resists not only this urge, but this offer. But eventually gives into his sin. He takes the money. He lives in immoral sexuality. And eventually his punishment, what actually happens to Balaam, is he's killed in a battle against his own people. He goes away to live in a foreign land. He's sent back into battle and and he's killed by the people of God. And the reason Jude points us to Balaam is because he was overtaken by his greed and his preoccupation with his sensuality. Like Cain, so he was a teacher of God's people, just like Cain, he knew what God had said. And you can see it if you read about Balaam, but what he does is he begins to ignore it. He begins to believe that there's something better to be had in the world. Money, sexuality. So he leaves God in search of that. He gives himself over to that. And in the process, he winds up destroying himself. Don't be like Balaam. Jesus is the better thing. Don't chase after what you think the world offers. Chase after Christ. Now the last example is Korah's rebellion. Korah led a revolt against Moses. So let me just read for you a little bit of what happened. This is from the book of Numbers, chapter 16. Now Korah took men, and they rose up before Moses with a number of the people of Israel, 250 chiefs of the congregation, chosen from the assembly, well-known men. They assembled themselves together against Moses and against Aaron and said to them, you have gone too Far, for all in the congregation are holy, every one of them, and the Lord is among them. Why then do you exalt yourselves above the assembly of the Lord? Now, Korah's problem is that he had misinterpreted the word of God, and he let his anger and his pride rule him. So when Korah says, everyone in the congregation is holy, what he's thinking of is is Exodus 19.6, 
where it says that Israel would be a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. And so here's a little bit of truth that Korah has taken and he's twisted. What's actually true is that we don't need priests. In fact, even under the old covenant, God had once said, you're all priests, you're a holy nation, you can all connect with me. We, because of the substitutionary death of Jesus, no longer need any mediator between us and God. Jesus is our only mediator. But that doesn't mean that we're not still under some kind of authority ordained by God. We're all under actually several kinds. We can, what, we, what we have a choice to do is we can either believe and trust that God has placed us under authority for our good and our benefit, or we can grow arrogant in our hearts and believe that we have no need of any authority including the authority of God. And that's, that's kind of the natural end of that. If you don't believe you need any authority over you, what you will eventually decide is you don't even need the authority of God in your life. And so I can think of, I can think of at least three different kinds of authority that God has ordained and placed every single person in this room under. All of it for our good. Even though you need no mediator between you and God, You need no priest. You don't need me. You don't need one of our elders. You can pray. You can worship. You can go to God directly. Even though that's all true, you are still at least under at least three kinds of authority. A lot of us are under more. But at least three kinds of authority, every single one of us is under. And so Korah took what God had said, twisted it, manipulated it, and then he rebelled against it. And the punishment for Korah and those who followed him, was being swallowed up by the earth while the rest of Israel watched. And the metaphor here is clear. When we're satisfied in God, when we believe what he's told us, when we accept and are grateful for what he's given us, then we rest securely in him. It's when we would rather go looking for something else where we become vulnerable. We wander from the truth. And the grace of God is no longer our goal and our aim. And what ends up happening, when we go out into the world looking for something else, is eventually we're swallowed up by it. Now that that happened literally for Korah. He literally got swallowed by the world. It probably is not going to happen for anybody that you know that they will actually fall into a sinkhole. But that doesn't make it any less serious. So let's not make the mistake, friends, of thinking that there aren't many more ways to be swallowed up by the earth in quicksand and sinkholes. There are plenty of other ways that the world can swallow you whole. And they happen when we're looking for our fulfillment there and not in Christ. So look at it, look at Christ. Don't follow the world. Don't do this yourself. Uh, This is a special, there's a special level of anger, Jude says. Don't let other people lead you 
away from it. So Jude says, don't do it yourself, but there's a special level of anger for people who lead others into that. So definitely do not be a leader of people. Look at verse 12 now. We're gonna move faster. Verse 12 says, these are hidden reefs at your love feasts as they feast with you without fear. Uh, Remember, we're not talking about something that comes from out there. That's the easy stuff. We can see We can see the danger of hypocrisy. We can see the danger of heresy coming a mile away. What's much shiftier is what comes from within. And that's why why this is a whole church project. Looking for this stuff isn't just my job. It's not just the job of, of, of our elders. We're all doing this together. This is what we together are called to. There's not a Christian here. There's not a Christian in the world who is not called to contend for the faith once for all delivered to the saints. Jude isn't just for me. Jude's for us all. We all contend together. In fact, we contend so much better together than we ever could apart. So this is a church project. And so here he says, watch out for leaders, particularly leaders. They're like, and then he just lists off these things. Shepherds feeding themselves, so they're selfish. Waterless clouds, just picture that. Uh, waterless clouds serve no purpose and perhaps even make promises that they have no intention of keeping. They're like clouds, like, like clouds that roll that you see in the distance in a very dry place, very much in need of rain. And so you look into the distance and you see dark clouds and you think, yes, it's finally come. We're going to get the rain our land so desperately needs. But the clouds never rain and they just pass over. All they bring is gloom. Uh, It says they're swept along by winds, fruitless trees in late autumn. Obviously, fruit trees are supposed to produce fruit. If they're not doing that, what good are they? Twice dead, uprooted, wild waves of the sea, casting up the foam of their own shame. This is a particularly poignant picture because it contrasts a beach. Picture a beach where the, the waves move in and out with a, a, a sort of calming rhythm. Have you been to a beach where the waves sort of actually clean the sand? It's a pristine beach because the waves even it out. They bring out, they take out all the sharp rocks and they just leave the sand. Now contrast that with waves that bring in seaweed, kelp, and unfortunately even garbage. Uh, when Holly and I took our honeymoon, we went to the Caribbean side of Mexico to a resort there, and, and it had this beautiful, beautiful beach. So we enjoyed many days there. And then for our 10-year anniversary, we went back to that same resort, same time of year, but now, sadly, that beach is almost unusable. Uh, in that part of the ocean, they're, they're battling this, this terrible seaweed infestation where every single morning the, the tide brings in huge piles of this chalky brown and green weed and it washes all over the shore. And what they have to do, what these resorts have to do is they have to invent, invest a lot of money. They have to have large crews of workers and giant pieces of construction level equipment scooping up and taking out the seaweed every single morning. If you go down to the beach at 6 or 7 a.m., it looks like a construction zone. 
huge dump trucks taking the seaweed out to make the beach usable. And on some days, they succeed. But some days you go down to the beach, 10, 11 a.m., and they've just given up for the day because the guests don't want to watch a construction crew work, crew work all day, and they just couldn't do it. It was too much. And so the, the beach is just full, I mean, to the point where you can't even get to the water because it's piled so high with this disgusting junk. This is what this is picturing. Waves casting up the foam of their own shame. Beaches should be beautiful. I think we all agree that a beach is a beautiful place but not when it brings in garbage and fills what should be a beautiful place. With, it, it smells bad too. It's a terrible smell. It smells like rotting fish and everything else. It makes it rotten. It says they're also like wandering stars for whom the gloom of utter darkness has been reserved forever. We've already seen that phrase, utter, gloom of utter darkness. It was in verse six. The gloom of utter darkness are, is where anybody, whether people or, or angels who blaspheme God draw people away from him. They go their own way. That's where people that that fit that description are sent. The gloom of utter darkness. Folks, God is holy. And he he can't have anything that wants to battle him for his supremacy or bring a wickedness or a darkness into his holy kingdom of light. He has to cast that which isn't of him into the gloom of utter darkness because in his kingdom is nothing but radiant pure light. Look for light. Don't look to the darkness. Uh, A few more verses, and I I just want to take these as one big group and then I want to bring this home. Jude quotes this, this extra biblical book called First Enoch. There's a couple more. It was written between where the Old Testament ended and where the New Testament began. And the point of including this quotation is twofold. Uh, First, this is just something that many Jewish readers of the time would have been familiar with. It's not a biblical book, but evidently because at least this quotation has made it into the Bible, it contains much that is true something helpful to the people of God. And the the people would have been familiar, so he would have quoted that and they would have said, oh, we're familiar with that. He's using something from their day, from their generation, that they were helped by. A second reason has to do with exactly what is written. And that's that that God's judgment against ungodliness is real. Look at how serious this is. Just look at this verse. The Lord will convict all the ungodly of their ungodliness, and they've and they've committed in, that they've committed in ungodly ways because they're ungodly sinners. Do you sense a theme in that sentence? Four times in a single sentence. That's what it says. Let me just read it again. The Lord will convict the ungodly of their ungodliness, which they've done in ungodly ways because they're ungodly sinners. That's not going to be regarded as great writing, using the same word four times in a single sentence, but it drives the point home, doesn't it? And then Jude says that that the same types of ungodliness are still present and active today. You can see it, he says, and people are grumblers and malcontents. They have little remorse over their sin. They're prideful and they're cheaters. Listen, this is serious. This is as serious as it gets. But we need to read this. So we need to do a couple things. We need to read this and see the weight of it 
but we also need to take heart because all is not lost. So for every person in this room, we should do two things when we read this. One is we should see that there's a check here. To be shown our sin and what ungodliness looks like is a gift. Not all gifts are easy to receive, but it's grace from God to have a list of things that we should watch out for, yet we are prone to follow. This is a grace and a gift from God. So don't take that for granted. And don't assume you're immune to this. I'm not and you're not. And the second thing, the best thing of all is is that Jude writes, not so that we would be beaten down or, or left hopeless, but Jude actually writes for the exact opposite reason. He tells us that we can, in the power of God, not only contend for this faith, but overcome by this faith. And this isn't a faith that's just going to be applied to some other people someplace else. It's not a faith that was only available when Jude wrote. This is the faith once for all delivered to the saints and handed down to us today. This is the same faith that we practice today. That's why we read our Bible. Because in it, we see a description of the faith that has always been for the people of God. And so today, church, this isn't just a promise from a long, long time ago. Jesus forgives ungodliness. If you see that word four times in a sentence, sentence, and immediately your heart falls, you sink. Remember what Cain did. Don't be like Cain. Cain's face fell, and he was angry. If you say, that's me, I'm the ungodly one, doing ungodly things in ungodly ways, even that is not beyond the certainty Not just the possibility, the certainty of forgiveness at the cross of Jesus. You are forgiven of sin. Not you might be. You are forgiven of sin when you repent of it and you believe that the death, Jesus died, he died for you, and then life, he now lives, he lives for you. So it's right to say, that judgment is part of the word of the Lord. It's a big part. But that's not his final word. God's final word is mercy because his final word is Christ. And in Christ is the fullness of life. So look for people to be around and look at yourself and ask, are these people, am I filled with grace Or am I comfortable in my sin? And in fact, is that my delight? Jude says, look out for people who've heard the word of God, but they refuse it. And and then they think they know a better way. He said, just a few things to know. It's going to look like people who grumble a lot. It's going to look like people who are malcontents. They're not happy in life. They're going to persist in their sin. They're going to have a defiant pride. Uh, Let me give you one verse as one thing that I think you might use to just tell you everything that you need to know 
about what you're hearing and what you're seeing. So if you wonder, how do I know what is the ungodly and how do I know what to do? I think there's a verse that I can just use to, to, to tell us everything we need to know about what we're looking at and what we're seeing. It's Galatians 6.14. But far be it from me to boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ by which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. Ask God to make you. Ask God to put you around people whose only boast is the cross. That's as simple, that's as, simple as I think God can possibly make it for us. Just ask that one diagnostic question. Is this person's boast the cross? Is my boast the cross? If not, reject it and run. If it is, hug them. Hug it out. Is their boast the cross? So Paul writes here that when this happens, the world has been crucified to me and, and I to the world. That means that the fleeting things, the fleeting things of the world seem dead to you. Because you see them for what they are. They're lifeless. They're insufficient. And it means then that the opposite, the, the truest things have come alive to you and you are glad in them. Christians should be happy people. We should be the happiest people. Not because we don't have hardships, not because we pretend that life can't be difficult, but because the cross happened and it's now empty. We should be happy because Jesus is real and alive and we're alive with him. So joy should mark the believer. The world is serious. Judgment is very real. It is very much a part of the word of the Lord. But the last word of the Lord is mercy. And as Christians, we boast in nothing but the cross. And so the world through that has been crucified to us. And we to the world, but we are alive to him forever, and thanks be to God. Let's pray. God, may you receive glory. I pray for our church that we would be a people only whose boast is the cross, that it would be not only our delight, but the thing we give out to other people. Whenever we hear of struggle, whenever we hear of pain and hardship, we would say that Jesus is alive. The cross has been emptied. Sin has been paid for. Jesus has been resurrected and hope now is eternal. May that be our boast. May that be our joy. Help us to see God where things are not that. That there is a lifelessness, an insufficiency. May we only be satisfied in Jesus. May he Fill us, and may we have joy in him. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Our Savior is a congregation located in Wheeling, Illinois. Our vision can be summed up in four words, building community, bringing Christ. To learn more about this vision and our hope for our neighborhood, visit us online at osefc.com dot org.